Where are we in the creed? We have a new phrase to introduce this week. The phrase is born of the Virgin Mary. Born of the Virgin Mary. Can you remember that? Born of the Virgin Mary. We didn't, I forgot to reiterate the creed at the beginning of the panel last Friday. Sorry about that. Our two new phrases then for the past two weeks were who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. I left out the word only. Don't, don't leave out the word only. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Should we try it up to this point? You can do it. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. This week in class, we're going to continue with the prophets. There are so many prophets, and they're so fascinating. We're doing a second week, and we're going to continue to tell Israel's story through the prophets, as well as the story of the Christian faith through the creed. These prophets today that we're going to look at, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, we're going to have a little bit of a breakdown on two prophets today, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, are going to take us still further 150 years into Israel's story than we were before. So we're going to get to narrate this. And in fact, this story takes us to the brink of disaster for our poor little nation, Israel. We had been following them. We had so much hope for what they could be. God had had so much hope in them as well. But warning, and we're going to be able to resume this story in two weeks and and basically complete it and complete the story, the narrative story of the Old Testament. This is where it's taking us Israel is on the brink of total, total collapse. This nation that just barely seems to have gotten underway is already failing. Our saying in the creed for this week, born of the Virgin Mary, is tied to last week's phrase, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. By way of thinking about a famous passage in Isaiah 7, this was just the way I tried to keep the Bible on track with the creed. As you'll recall, Christians um, see Isaiah 7 in a very important way and tie it into what we now know as the Christmas story in terms of Jesus' birth from a virgin, born of the Virgin Mary. Okay, and conceived by the Holy Spirit. In its context, in Isaiah 7, this very famous story, um, has, has a fascinating um, um, story to tell about Israel's fate, Israel's history. Back around the year 700 BC, actually a little earlier than the year 700 BC, maybe like the year 739 or something like that, BCE, um, the prophet Israel had to encourage the king Ahaz, who was, felt like he was about to be destroyed by people in his own country, or what used to be his own country, as well as the Assyrians. And the prophet came to him and said, look, the woman is with child. And before this child even gets very old, before he even knows wrong and right and can really eat a lot of solid food, this threat that you are worried about is going to be gone. And so a promise was attached to the birth of a child in a time of national disaster. So a beautiful story in its context and very meaningful to the prophet. And I say this by way of emphasizing something about the historical situatedness the historical situation of the prophets. The prophets spoke to their contemporaries. They also ended up speaking to the future, and this is something that's very important that you have to understand, you just have to, about Christian interpretation of the Bible. Christian interpretation of the Bible has worked and works now and will forever work on many layers. It's like a layer cake. It's like an onion. You know, pick your favorite food analogy, okay? Like a multi-layer jello cream, another flavor of jello, all kinds of things stacked on top of each other. The Bible for Christians in in basic Christian interpretation does not have one meaning for all time. It has layers of meaning. If, in fact, God has inspired the Bible and God is the ultimate author of the Bible, should you expect that the Bible has a simplistic message like for four-year-olds? No. It has a message for four-year-olds, as we know, for those of us who have maybe taught children in church, you can do that. And it has a message for eight-year-olds and ten-year-olds. But it also has a message for 18-year-olds 
And it has messages for 25 and 45 and 95 and 105 year olds for seasons of life and in the story of the life of faith. I don't say things like this at you very often, but I want to put this out there to you. I just want to stun you with it. God does not want you to be an eight-year-old for the rest of your life. Some of you are trapped in eight-year-old Sunday school right now. This is where you're at intellectually and mentally in terms of studying the Bible. And you think this is a virtue to be eight years old forever in the faith. I'm here to tell you it's not. And I'm here to tell you something as a 39-year-old approaching midlife, falling apart at the seams all over the place. You are going to need things in your life of faith and from scripture and from theology and from people around you and from your church that you do not need now and that you did not need when you were eight years old. It's not enough. There has to be something more. You have to grow. You have to change, okay? And so seeing the Bible on this model of many layers I think is a good analogy to help you understand that there are going to be layers as well to your life and to your reading of the Bible. And so to understand things like the fact that Isaiah 7 was written in an historical context for a particular people and had a situation in the life of Israel, but then also somehow, almost miraculously, indeed actually literally miraculously in the New Testament, has another life in another story, that's meaningful. That's meaningful stuff for thinking about faith and development and growth. So to say, as I know some of you think and have even said, that the historical context of the Bible doesn't matter is like being an eight-year-old. Like you're stuck in like children's church where you can't really think about the historical context of the Bible because indeed you cannot think about the context of an entire life because your brain is not even fully developed. You're on a roller coaster of emotions, friends. You're in late, most of you are in late adolescence. You are adolescence. You're, you know, a little like biology 101 here. Like if you feel like you're on an emotional roller coaster and you're like, you're crying one minute, depressed the next, going, you know, that's life. But it's also because your brain is like literally going, like physically in your, in your skull. That's where you're at developmentally. And I'm telling you, I'm just telling you, I know because I know you're going to need more from faith than just what you have needed in the past. And if you don't get it, and if you don't search for it, like a hidden jewel somewhere, your faith will die. And it'll die because you will turn 20 and 25 and 35, and you will encounter things that your eight-year-old faith cannot handle is not ready for and cannot do. So prophets are these people who look at Israel and be like, Israel, you're acting like children. Grow up. There's a life here that God wants you to live. Can you live it? Can you do this thing? The prophets had a setting. We looked um, last week at some prophets who lived in the 8th century, the 700s. They had a real situation and a real historical place in Israel's story, but they're going to continue to have a place. Isaiah had a place in the year 700-ish, but he's also going to have a place in the New Testament too. Okay. All right, rant over on that front. I want to start by reading you um, today a chapter from the first chapter of Jeremiah, and I just want to read it out loud. If you have a Bible with you, you can follow along. If you don't, you can just listen to my melodious voice. I'll annotate some parts of it. Here in this chapter, though, the first chapter of Jeremiah, which I'm going to ask you to read for this week, maybe you can just count this as you're reading, okay, if you're reading along, um, we're going to read what we could call a call narrative of the prophet Jeremiah, a story in which God approaches him and asks him to do some things and to say some things. And we're going to hear Jeremiah, like Moses, like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, he's going to be reluctant. And he's going to have a reason that he's reluctant. It's going to be because he says he's too young, like he's a little boy. We don't know how old he is when he says he's a little boy. Does that mean he's like 5 or 10 or 15? The word for little young boy in Hebrew, na'ar, is a word that 
can really denote a lot of different age groups. It's not just a single age group. So let's just say he's like 12 or 13. You could even say he's 18. Whatever age you are, think of him that age maybe, okay? If you're 18, think of him as 18 or 19. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I'm too young. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and to tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. Now, I'll, I'll break in right here. God is not above doing a pun, a little punnery every now and again. Um, the word for watching in Hebrew, shokade, from the root shakad, also sounds like the word shakade for almond tree. So it's like God saying to the boy Jeremiah, what do you see? And he's like, I don't know, a watch? God's like, yeah, I'm watching. Get it? Like that's, he's doing a pun there with that. So you get that sort of thing. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a pot that is boiling, I answered. It's tilting toward us from the north. The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I'm about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdom, declares the Lord. Their kings will come up and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me in burning incense to other gods and in worshiping what their hands have made. So we get a new theme in the text now, a new theme indeed. And that theme is judgment. That theme is judgment. We haven't, we've had some judgment texts. It's not that as though judgment has been completely absent so far in what we've had. But it's been largely absent. We've had a lot of nation building. We've had a lot of kings doing what kings are going to be doing. You know, they're going to build up. Solomon's going to build the temple. David's going to build the capital. But now the Lord comes through the prophets and says, this national project is about to be over. It's done. And so Jeremiah is going to be a book of largely of judgment, not without hope, as we'll see here in a minute. And Ezekiel is going to be a book that's largely about judgment at the very end of Israel's national project, not without hope, as we'll see at the very end of our time together here today, but largely about judgment. Recap for our story. I tried to write this all on the board here. I've got a, I've got a huge uh, list of words on the board. I realize that some of these words are probably too small to see if you're in the back row. I apologize. I kind of ran out of space, and then the whole thing was a disaster, and okay, just roll with me. During each period of Israel's history, we've seen that prophets have come up to stand alongside of the king, either for encouragement or to proclaim 
doom and gloom for the leaders if they do not follow God's ways. In the Torah, we had Moses, primarily Moses. Abraham is called a prophet too, but really it was Moses who was kind of like the everything guy for Israel who came in and stood there and mediated God's commands for Israel. In Joshua and Judges, when they come in, they take the land. They finally get the land, but then it's kind of chaotic in Judges. We don't really have any named prophets. A couple of times there's an unnamed, quote, man of God who kind of comes in and does things and says things. So not all the prophets are named in the Bible like Isaiah and Amos and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Um, In 1 and 2 Samuel, of course, we had Samuel. He was the big prophet there, but also Nathan and also some other figures too who kind of crop up in texts that I didn't even ask you to read. Um, in 1 Kings, now here's where the story, here's where we need to re- re- recap where, where our story has gone over the last couple of weeks because it gets confusing. In 1 Kings, David's son Solomon becomes the ruler of the nation. Okay, Solomon. He is the one that God had spoken about in 2 Samuel 7 as the son and God would be like a father to him and he would build the temple and indeed, this is Solomon's big achievement. He builds the temple, Okay. And he's rich and he's wise and there are famous stories told about Solomon and things seem to be going pretty well for Solomon. Except when they're not. By the time that 1 Kings chapter 11 rolls around, Solomon has degraded himself into the worship of other gods. He's done the exact thing that God said for Israel not to do and led Israel astray that way. And there's a consequence for this in the biblical text. And the consequence is this. The nation around the year, if you want to put a date on this, maybe 920, these are just round dates, okay. 920 BC, there's a, there's a really good timeline of all these dates in it in your textbook, by the way, so copy it down if you want or just look at that timeline again and again. 920 BC, the nation actually splits into something like a civil war that will last for like 200 years. It's not always an active civil war where people are literally fighting each other in the streets, but sometimes it involves war. And this northern group that the Bible then begins to call Israel, the 10 tribes that dwell up in this place, see my simple map of the land here, okay, the Sea of Galilee up here, the Dead Sea, this is Jerusalem, this is Samaria. This became the capital of the northern kingdom. Israel becomes its own nation and they choose their own kings that are not Davidic kings, not the sons of David, just like basically anybody that they can find to be king. Judah down here in the south remains its own entity with Davidic kings that rule over them in the line of David. Okay? So we have essentially two nations now at this point starting in 920. How do you think, by the way, if you had to guess, how do you think that the biblical authors feel about this split? Do you think, without even reading it, probably most of you haven't read it, do you think they're gonna think that this split was a great thing? Northern kingdom, go off, yeah, do your own thing. Have a king that's not David, that'll be great. You know, we're, the nation's too big anyway, we can't all pay attention to Jerusalem, like, let's just, no. <laughs> they're gonna be very against this idea. They do not like this idea. Amos hates this idea. All the prophets hate this idea. All of the biblical narrators hate this idea. Nobody likes this idea in the Bible, okay, except for the rebel northern kings. Of course, from their perspective, you know, maybe they thought that they were just, you know, like any group, you know, in a, political, a politically hard situation. They thought they were kind of just doing what they needed to do. We don't need to come all the way down to Jerusalem, you know, to worship. It's so far away. We should have our own little sanctuaries up here. And indeed, they do, they do that. They set up their own places to worship. They do their own thing. And the prophets say, no, 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 no. God is to be worshiped in Jerusalem. You are worshiping other gods up there. Who knows what you're doing? Some of these northern kings like Omri and Ahab and Jeroboam II, there are two Jeroboams in the Bible, confusingly, as if it wasn't confusing enough, um, are actually very powerful figures. And we know about them. We know about them from inscriptions and writings, even from outside the Bible in the ancient Near Eastern world of the Bible. 
We know about them from the Assyrians, who were a big empire up here, who often kind of made incursions into the land, made political deals, destroyed people, did things. And they talked about Omri. They talked about Ahab. They talked about these kings. They saw them as legitimate, big, powerful figures. Down here in the south, not so much. I mean, this was a very small group, okay? So we know that, we know that this kingdom in the north was actually very successful, very powerful regionally. Does that mean that God loved it? No. He barely even talks about them. The biblical authors don't really talk about Omri that much, except to say that he was a bad sinner. They do talk a lot, though, about Elijah and Elisha, the prophets that are sent to confront those kings in very famous stories. Okay. Then in the south, you have kings like Hezekiah, who is known as a righteous, reforming type, Uzziah, who dies during the book of Isaiah, and prophets like Isaiah, Amos, Hosea, and Micah live during that time period. That's like the 700s B.C. But where are we now, okay? We're now looking at the last 150 or so years of the existence of this nation. In the year 720, this is is sad. Get ready to be sad, people. In the year 720, the Assyrians actually destroy the northern kingdom. No more. It's over. Something that Amos and, and Isaiah and really Hosea, all these prophets had actually talked about you don't stop doing this, the Lord is going to judge this place. So they're gone at this point now in the narrative. So now we're going through the rest of the 700s, all the 600s, with just one little tiny remnant left here in Judah, and even that group now is going to have a lot of trouble. Because there's a new empire on the scene. They are the Babylonians. They're kind of down here. Their, their empire is in the heart of what is today Iraq, down there by the Persian Gulf. And they're going to be like the next empire on this contest, who wants to rule the ancient Near Eastern world. They're going to now come in, and they actually begin to threaten the existence of even this small little tiny nation. And in the year 597 BC, they kind of come in, they loot the temple, and they take away a bunch of people into exile, a kind of miniature exile as prisoners away. And then in the year 587 BC, there's going to be an even more decisive destruction. I can barely even talk about it. We'll come full circle on this in two weeks, but I'll give you a preview. The Babylonians are going to come in and they're going to burn the temple to the ground. They're going to take Israel's last king, Zedekiah. They're going to take Zedekiah's sons, the last Davidic heirs. Remember the promise to David in 2 Samuel 7? One of your sons will be on my throne forever, ruling. You're going to do this. The Babylonians take those two kings and kill them right in front of their father's face and then take Zedekiah and gouge his eyes out so that the last thing he gets to see on planet Earth are his sons being killed and the monarchy that God had set up being cut off, seemingly decisively. They then take him off into exile and he dies. Okay? That's the story of Israel as a nation in the Old Testament. That's actually what happens. Yes, the spoiler has come out. It comes to ruin and God does not save them. What happened? What's the problem? How did it all come to this? We're going we're gonna to come back to this story, as I said, in two weeks. We'll take a, a break with some poetic materials next week in Psalms and in Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and some books known as wisdom books. And we'll look at how, how Israel deals with despair. Does the, how does the Bible deal with this darkness that is Israel's story? We'll get to that. And, and we'll narrate more fully this story of the final end of the monarchy in a little bit. But I want to focus on two figures today for the rest of our time together, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who actually lived during this late monarchy, during this late time period. And they live to see this happen. What was their message to Israel right before this happened? 
How did they try to sway the people into obedience? What did God want them to say? So starting with Jeremiah. We'll have to do a lot of summarizing here. I just want to prepare you for your reading so that it's more meaningful. Jeremiah, as we find out in the first couple of verses, is from Anathoth. Anathoth, it's not, maybe not a, a, a name that rolls off the tongue, okay? Anathoth is a city in Judah that was, to make a long story very short, was home to a, a, an ex-priestly group. A priestly group that had been important much earlier in Israel's history. They even took care of the Ark of the Covenant when the Ark used to be north of Jerusalem at a place called Shiloh. But through various political wranglings and problems, that group no longer was so important in the priestly circles. They'd fallen on hard times, and Jeremiah was a part of this group. You can imagine the psychology of a group like that that had served in God's presence of the Ark and had done important things, but then maybe their role had lessened through the years. And Jeremiah's from this group, and he has intense memories of, of, when, of what happened at Shiloh to the ark. What, when did all this Shiloh stuff happen with the ark? It was back in the book of 1 Samuel, actually, when the Philistines came and destroyed Shiloh and took the ark. Okay. The prophet is one in the Bible who remembers. The prophets have long memories. They remember things that other people forget, which is why, for example, um, in one of his most famous passages, the so-called Temple Sermon, in Jeremiah chapter 7, the prophet brings up Shiloh. He says, remember what happened at Shiloh. It's like people are like, what do you mean remember what happened? It was like 500 years prior. Oh, he remembers, right? He remembers like it was yesterday. Prophets do not forget. Jeremiah does not forget. So he's a kind of a priestly figure, but not maybe in such an official way. Um, let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 7 and read a little bit from this most famous passage. Jeremiah 7. And I think right here we get, we get really a core of Jeremiah's message and a core of what these prophets had to say. Jeremiah 7. This is, what the, uh, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house, the Lord's house is the temple, and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are useless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe? Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Maybe for those of you who are already familiar with the Bible a little bit, this phrase resonates, has an echo in your memory. Who says this phrase, this famous phrase, goes into the temple and does a serious thing and says, this place has become a den of robbers. It's none other than Jesus. Jesus in the New Testament, in the book of Mark and John famously, comes into the temple, doesn't like what he sees going on, 
starts like literally throwing a physical ruckus in the temple, throwing tables over, driving people out. He makes a whip and starts whipping people and says, this was supposed to be a place of prayer, but you turned it into a den of robbers. Jesus quotes the prophets. This is another reason why knowing the biblical history and understanding the context of words matters in the Bible. Because Jesus stands in a line of tradition. He's not an isolated figure who just comes out of nowhere, right? Like an angel from the sky. He's literally a Jew in Israel's history who acts out Israel's history again in new ways and enlivens and condemns Israel in new ways. His words are from the prophet Jeremiah who who first spoke them at at the temple. Just imagine this scene. I mean, can you imagine it visually, physically? Can you imagine someone doing this at your church? I mean, maybe that's the best analogy that we have. You know how churches have like greeters who stand at the door and they're all like super smiley. It's like the nicest people and they're handing out bulletins. And maybe like right before the service starts, there's a lot of people kind of streaming into the doors. Can you imagine if someone stood right in the doorway and was screaming out something just like that, saying, you think you can come in here and sing these songs and raise your hands and, and, and pray to God when you act like you do? God has been watching. Did you notice the callback too to Jeremiah chapter one there? For I have been watching. God's been watching and don't think that you're gonna be safe just because you're like, oh, and he's even mocking them. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Like you'll just be able to say, oh, I'm in the temple and I'm safe. Now, where would anybody get such a ridiculous idea that a temple would just save them like magic? It sounds like magical thinking. Oh, if I have like a magic object or if I'm in a magic space, then nothing sad can happen. Like that's, that's eight-year-old spirituality right there. I'm in a magic place. I said a magic prayer. You know, I have a magic item. It will save me. Why would anyone think that? Well, in Israel's history, there are some, maybe some reasons that actually create a very difficult and painful paradox for Israel. And it's not so simple. So for example, back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had actually promised that he would never take away the kingship from David's family. That's a serious promise to make. Maybe people couldn't be blamed for relying on that promise. In Isaiah, for example, the Assyrians had threatened Judah. They were about to destroy Jerusalem under King Hezekiah. And a miraculous victory was won. Apparently, God just somehow miraculously destroyed the Assyrian army and they left. You can see how there could you know, begin to arise a kind of legend around Israel and Jerusalem in the minds of people who live there about whether or not the nation could actually be destroyed. And they might think that the temple, just being there, just, just like we are Israel, we have a temple, that that in and of itself could actually save Israel. But notice the words of the prophet. He's there to say, no, no, no. <laughs> Don't you dare think that you can get a magic place to save you from, from your actions. What are the actions, by the way, that he says that they're doing? Sounds pretty serious, like murder. He's talking about shedding innocent blood. He's talking about worshiping other gods. He's also talking about just bread and butter, basic prophetic stuff, like our panelists were talking about last week. Um, do not oppress the foreigner. Deal with each other justly. Do not oppress the fatherless or the widow. It's all stuff from like Leviticus. It's all stuff from the law. So the prophets are there also to call people back to the laws and just the basic rules of morality in the nation and the way that vulnerable people are treated. That's not, you know, oh, your liberal panelists, professors come in and they're doing their social justice warrior thing. That's just like the words of the Bible, okay? (laughs) Like what you do with that in your life and how you interpret that is complicated, I know. I know that it's not always easy to just say, do not oppress the foreigner. Okay, well, what's that supposed to mean to me? I, know, you know, I, I don't have like a quick zinger to suggest exactly how that must be done. But it's there, and it's there a lot. 
It's a pretty serious um, um, matter for the prophets, this issue of justice. How does it work? How do you do it? That's straight from the text of the Bible. They're obsessed with it. The prophets are obsessed with it. If you're someone who believes in the Bible as the word of God, how are you going to deal with that in your life? Not just to try to remember it for a test, but like, how do you respond to that? What would Jeremiah say to me? I mean, that's, that's really where this becomes existentially important to me, right? Like, where do I situate myself in the narrative? A narrative not just about other people and their problems, but a narrative about me and my problems, and a narrative about you and your problems. Where are you in the narrative? So Jeremiah does this temple sermon. Um, he says so many things. Um, you're, I hope you'll enjoy reading this, but I hope you'll also feel challenged by it. Let me just point out one more text that's, that's really fascinating. Maybe you've heard this phrase in your life, maybe even in faith context. It's from Jeremiah 19. The phrase, fire in my bones. I got fire in my bones. I can't hold it in. Jeremiah famously uses this phrase like fire in my bones to talk about God's word, God's words to him. But I want you to notice something about the context in which he uses it. It's not positive. He actually says, Jeremiah does, in a kind of prayer, an outpouring of lament in Jeremiah chapter uh, 19. Actually, it's in Jeremiah chapter 20, sorry. 27. He's talking to God here. Listen to this language he uses to God. You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I'm ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and derision all day long. But if I say, I'm not going to mention his word or speak in his name anymore, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. And the passage goes on with the prophet basically wishing that he had never been born. So lest we think of prophets as like, happy Mr. Pastor man with a tie, just patting people on the shoulder. Here we've got a prophet basically looking at God and saying, you deceived me. You tried to make me a prophet and be part of your team. And now I hate it and it's ruining my life and I want to die. That's a prophet, okay? <laughs> That's how he feels. That's the situation he is in. The prophet is one who feels the tension and the destruction and the pathos or the suffering of the nation and embodies it in him or herself. And Jeremiah does this as painfully as anybody else. He does take a hopeful turn, though. These books typically tend to do that. Like, like for example, in Jeremiah 33, after so many judgments, after so much destruction and lament, he turns and says, um, this is what the Lord says. You say about this place, it is a desolate waste without people or animals. Yes. Yet, in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, inhabited by neither people nor animals, there will be heard once more the sounds of joy and gladness. The voices of bride and bridegroom. There are going to be weddings in this place. And the voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, Give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before, says the Lord God. And he goes on in this vein as well. How can a book which has so much destruction imagine that much hope after the destruction? Ah, but Jeremiah does. Speaking of which, let us turn to Ezekiel. Oh, before we get there, I wanted to say something about Jeremiah. I wrote these words up here just to remind you about this, this issue of textual criticism. Do you remember this from like week two of the class? Textual criticism is the process by which scholars and archaeologists try to help us understand what are the original texts of the Bible. 
Why would they need to do that? Just pick up the Bible and read it. No, we don't actually have an original Bible. What we have is a reconstructed collection of different kinds of manuscripts. Manuscripts like, for example, the very incomplete but very tantalizing Dead Sea Scrolls, which are from maybe, you know, the year 200, 100 BC, something like that. We also have this thing called the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, which survived in Greek even when there were no Hebrew texts that survived for a very long time. And we have this thing called the Masoretic Text, which is a relatively full set of Hebrew writings, which is basically what we call the Old Testament today. The book of Jeremiah is a great example for why historians and archaeologists who do the work that they do to provide the Bible for you are super necessary for the Bible reading experience. Because, here's the thing about the book of Jeremiah. In the Septuagint, which is one legitimate ancient witness to the book, um, the book of Jeremiah is like 15 or 20% shorter than it is in the Masoretic text or the Hebrew tradition. And not just the length, it's also order of the chapters and, and serious content. So in, in antiquity, we essentially had two books of Jeremiah sort of floating around. Now you might say, what about the Dead Sea Scrolls? Those, that's older than any of it. Did the Dead Sea Scrolls reveal the longer version in the Septuagint or the shorter version? Which version do we, you know, which version do we have? Uh, the longer version in the Masoretic text, sorry, the shorter version in the Septuagint. Turned out that in the Dead Sea Scroll community, they had the version of the book preserved that was in the Septuagint, the shorter version, and a separate version of the book, which was in the Masoretic text, the longer version. So they apparently knew that there were two different versions of this book floating around. It's work that is still yet undone, and it's work that reminds us, uh, and maybe you wonder, okay, well, what about my Bible? Which one's in there? It's the longer one. They put the one that's in the Masoretic text there, the fuller, longer version. But you might say, okay, but which one's the right one? Like, am I reading the right words in the right order? It's kind of a serious question to ask in a reading experience. Yeah, I know, it's work that's still being done. Scholars and translators and linguists and archaeologists are still working on these kinds of things. And Bible translations are an attempt to kind of bring you the latest of what has been done on that front. It reminds us, though, to set our expectations in a realistic place about history and ancient archaeology and translation and these kinds of things. The key to happiness is indeed expectations, okay? So we're dealing with an ancient text here. We're dealing with a tradition from long ago. This wasn't written on like a word processor like five years ago, just to be recovered on the internet or anywhere that you want. Okay, enough of Jeremiah. Let's turn to Ezekiel for a few minutes here before, before we end. Ezekiel was a priest who lived to see this event happen, 597, when the Babylonians came in and took a group of exiles, prisoners, away and led them on a painful march all the way to Babylon. And Ezekiel, as we're told in the very first chapter of the book, as you'll read, is settled by a river here in Babylon. Maybe he's like, maybe there's some little tributary coming off of, of the Euphrates River. These are rivers, by the way. Um, and he's living there with a group of exiles. And what Ezekiel's going to do, what you're going to read Ezekiel doing in that group of exiles, is he's going to speak to them. He's going to be like their resident pastor, let's say, okay? He's going to be like their resident prophet. And he's going to mediate to them the experiences that they are having of pain and of discomfort and of loss. And he's going to mediate it in all kinds of bizarre ways. Right away in the book, you're going to read him having a vision. It is one of the most spectacular texts in the Old Testament. He has a vision of some kind of divine being with all kinds of wheels within wheels and wings and faces and animal bodies flying around. And the glory of God is in this being or, th or the being is God. Ezekiel's very, he's a little afraid to say that he saw God or that the being is God. As a priest, he speaks in priestly ways. He doesn't just want to say, I just saw God face to face. As a priest 
who, who abides in a kind of um, um, culture of God where God's holiness is very important. He doesn't want to get too close. But this glory of God even travels with the exile group and appears to Ezekiel all the way in another land. And now marks a kind of new chapter in our story where is God's glory really just tied to the temple? By the way, what's going to happen to God's glory in the temple if the temple is destroyed? This is a serious issue. Because in the theology of the ancient Near Eastern world, gods live in temples. And if, you're, if, you know, if, if you win a battle against another nation, it's your god's victory over that nation. Your temple wins. Your god, your mascot deity wins. But what happens to Israel if another nation comes in and burns down the temple? Is God just kind of sitting there in the back of the temple like an old gray bearded man with a temple burning down over his head? I guess we lost. Story over. This is a real possibility for Israel at this delicate point in our story, that the story will just end. And Ezekiel lives through this, and he tries to talk to people in ways that make them feel ultra, ultra responsible for this horrible thing that has happened and is about to happen to the temple. He tells them stories. Some of these stories, by the way, are, are, you know, it's not for kids. Let's just say that. You'll get to this, especially in Ezekiel 16 and 23. He uses sexually explicit language, some of the most sexually explicit language in the Bible to use this adultery and women and men theme to talk about Israel's unfaithfulness to God. It's kind of like Hosea, but like X-rated Hosea kind of stuff. He's wild. He even does things with his body that are almost like contortionist kind of theater kinds of things. If you're into theater, you might be into Ezekiel. He, 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 makes, he, he kind of plays in the dirt with bricks and things and makes a model of the city and lays a siege against it and people are supposed to look at him and gawk at him. And he's going to say, yes, this is what the Babylonians are going to do to you. They're going to surround the city. He's asked to bake his food over his own excrement at one point, which he doesn't want to do because he thinks it'll be defiled. And God's like, fine, you can cook it over cow dung then in that case. But he's supposed to mimic what it's like to live in a horrified state on the run. At one point, and this to me is one of the saddest parts of the book, and I think I have this on your chapters to read. This is maybe in chapter 24 or 25, something like that. Um, uh, chapter 24, God comes to Ezekiel and says, you know what? It's true. Israel was like my bride. I had a lot of pride in her. She was beautiful. It was my country. But I, I, have, to sh- I have to show people a sign. I have to show you a sign, Ezekiel, of what's going to happen to my country, my bride, my pride and joy and my love. Your wife, whom you love, she's going to die. I'm gonna, she's just going to die. And, and you will not mourn for her. You may not cry. Just stare in people's faces and take it and feel the pain, feel the horror. That's what's going to happen. And then it narrates, his wife dies and he is, he is ordered not to mourn for her, not to do anything at all, just to take it and just to feel the pain and the violence of death in his body and for people to watch him do that. Such a bizarre scene for a prophet, right? To experience that kind of pain, that kind of darkness. But this is the point we're at in the story where the people need to feel pain and darkness about what's happening. So the prophet reflects that. But to close, even for Ezekiel, through all of this craziness you're going to read, these wild things he says and does, is that the end of the story for Israel? In a very famous chapter, and this is Ezekiel chapter 37, the prophet comes and the hand of the Lord is on him and sort of like teleports him away in a vision to some kind of big valley, which is full of dead bones. This is like a Halloween story, okay? He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, this is what God calls Ezekiel, can these bones live? 
And Ezekiel essentially says, to summarize, I don't know, you're God, you know, tell me. God says, yes, they can. And there's this wild wind that sweeps through the valley and the bones stand up like a skeleton army. And then blood and skin and eyeballs and hair begins flying around and they become living beings. And then a breath from God makes them alive. And God says, even things that are dead, dead like these bones were dead, dead like your nation is dead, I can make it alive and I will. But how? How is that going to happen? How is Israel going to deal with this? This theme of death and destruction is going to be a nice segue as well into our next week's reading in which we'll get to see how Israel further with great depth deals with misery and pain and death and indeed ask the question, as it must be asked, is Christianity a religion of just like fake happiness and joy? Is there any way to deal with darkness as a Christian? Is there a way to deal with death and pain and the horror that comes from just hard life. So we'll get to that, but Ezekiel's a good resource for these kinds of times.